Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me, Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. Imagine. Imagine living, eating, sleeping, relieving oneself, daydreaming, weeping, but mostly waiting in a room the size of your bathroom. Now imagine doing all those things, but mostly waiting for the rest of your life. Imagine waiting, waiting, waiting to die. I don't have to imagine. I live in one of those rooms, like about 3,000 other men and women in 38 states across the United States. It's called death row. I call it hell. Welcome to hell. Each of the states which have death rows have a different system for their execution cases, varying from the relative.
Uh, on December 7th of 2011, just last December, uh, the DA, the District Attorney of Philadelphia, decided that he would not pursue another death sentence in the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. And that very day, when he announced this to the press on December 7th, Mumia was transferred to what is called administrative custody. Um, essentially, that is a way station, uh, a moment, uh, a situation of transition or a unit of transition between death row and, and general population, where he's going to be transferred, and where he will serve a lifetime in prison without parole. Now, administrative custody is usually reserved for prisoners who are being disciplined by the state. The irony of this current situation for Mumia is that he is in a worse condition now, if you can imagine, than he was on death row. In many ways, what we see happening is that this is the last attempt on the part of the state to punish him for having successfully uh, fought against his death sentence, for having successfully become, in the United States, the face against racism, the face, uh, the face of justice, and the face of defiance against the state. He has been in what is known as solitary confinement now for 37 days. That means that he is completely isolated with absolutely no human contact and all of his privileges, not that there were many, on death row have been taken away from him. So again, it, he, he is in a very small cell. He does not have access to his typewriter. He does not have a television. He does not have a radio. He gets one visit one time a week for one hour. He has only one phone call that he has to request once a week. And if the person he calls doesn't answer the phone, he has to wait another week to request that call. So again, he is in his cell 23 hours a day. This kind of isolation has been um, determined to be, by the international community, torture. This is our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Our common ground of the race and for the race, broadcasting bold, brave, and black. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Tonight, our guest is Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush. He's the director of the Urban Research Institute at Morgan State University. He's no stranger our common ground. We'll be talking with him about his recent visit with Mumia Abu-Jamal, a political prisoner, renowned journalist, and warrior behind bars, serving life in a Pennsylvania federal prison after spending more than 26 years on death row. We'll be talking with Dr. Wimbush about the prison industrial complex, 
about black boys, about black life and culture in the era of Obama. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. You 
the piece in the Be More News uh, today, um, and I uh, had a discussion with the editor who ran uh, the notice of this program tonight, and I said to him that I thought that you were Baltimore's one of Baltimore's finest, and he absolutely agreed. Dottie's a good brother. He's a good brother. He keeps the black community here in uh, Baltimore very informed of stories that, you know, don't get in the so-called white supremacist pressure, particularly the Baltimore fans. He's a good brother, real good brother. Well, I'm looking forward to a relationship with his uh, publication and his uh, Internet um, content, and uh, he and I are going to talk further. Uh, you you know once I make a connection, I, I, I've made the connection. <laughs> That's true. Uh, now, uh, for people who are listening who may not know, Mumia Abu-Jamal is an African-American writer and journalist, author of six books, hundreds of columns and articles, who has spent the last 29 years on Pennsylvania's death row. I kind of delineate that, uh, Dr. Wimbush, because the first four years that he was in prison, he was embroiled in the legal tanglement before a sentencing of the death sentence. And so I like to make that detail to, for people to understand the journey that this man has been on. His demand for new trials and freedom has been supported by heads of state from France to South Africa, by Nobel laureates Nelson Mandela, Toni Morrison, Desmond Tutu, even by the European Parliament, by distinguished human rights organizations like Amnesty International, city governments from Detroit to, to San Francisco to Paris to Boston, scholars, religious leaders, the U.S. Congress, the NAACP, the Black Congressional Caucus of the U.S. Congress, I'm sorry, uh, labor unions, and by countless thousands who really understand the nature of democratic and human rights and justice all over the world. And you got a chance um, to meet with him recently, uh, two weeks ago, is that right? Yeah, it was on the 23rd of uh, uh, July. But, you know, BJ, I want to say this, that, that long list of luminaries, dignitaries, and organizations that you know, despite all of that, a profound truth still remains. Mumia is still in prison, mm-hmm. and 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 one of the things I you know I'm sure we're going to get in tonight is, you know, we've got to. I just I've become very frustrated with how we approach protests and dealing with our political prisoners. But let's we'll, we'll talk about that later on. For okay. Sure. Uh, uh, first of all. Uh, let's talk about uh, the process that you had to go through in order oh. to visit him because he's moved from death row into um, the <coughs> prosecutor. Uh, the federal prosecutor was unwilling to um, to go after him again on a challenge to his his death sentence. So he was remanded back into a sentence of life. Yes. 
And one of the reasons that I played in our feature the clip that I did from uh, with one of his attorneys talking about what that transition meant is that he moved from death row into a whole nother level of terrorism um, implemented by the state. So what did you have to do in order to visit him? You're not a relative. Well, you're Well, you know, it, it, I think it's just how things happen. Uh, Diafra Diallo is a political activist from Mali. She's lived a long time in France, but she just recently, past couple of years, uh, relocated to Mali. I actually brought the uh, offer to Morgan State where I teach about four years ago. She was uh, involved with making a documentary of uh, the prison, I mean, the rebellions that were occurring in France, if you remember, about 207, 208. And so the offer has been the lead person, along with Julia Wright, the daughter of um, Richard Wright in France, to like just make people aware of Mumia's situation. So uh, Diafra was coming to visit Mumia, and I simply asked. I said, "Can I go along?" And she said she would be, you know, would be honored, and I was honored that I could go. So she came here in late June, early July for about a month, and I accompanied her, you know, to the prison. Uh, we made a stop before there and met with uh, Pam and Ramona Africa in Philadelphia. And uh-huh. I had known, you know, Ramona for years. Just Believe it or not, I just met Pam a couple of years ago, but I known Ramona for many, many years. In fact, when I was teaching at this, we brought her down there to talk. So one of the things your audience should know is that Ramona is not allowed to visit Mumia because she is a, quote, ex felon according to the state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And, mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. and so ex-felons, whatever that means, and we'll talk about what a political prisoner is in the United States, uh, can't visit people that are mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. under, you know, still there. So, you know, Ramona sent her regards, and we went, we drove from, um, you know, Philadelphia, their house there in Philly, to uh, Crackville, little tiny town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it really literally was not, the prison was not on my GPS. And um, in, in fact, we went to another prison, which was about five miles from there, another state prison. And most people go to that prison first, and then you got to wait to get into there to be told that this is the wrong place, because Mumia just got moved there in April. And so uh, we we got in there and um, finally we had to drive up the road to this kind of signless road in Frackville, Pennsylvania, way up on this mountain like, and we finally got in to see Mumia. But and, and, I and in terms this, of hours, yeah. how far is it from Philadelphia? It's about three hours, but it's, I mean it's not a long drive. It's a hilly drive. It's very kind of a roundabout way. And as you know, that one of the, you know, as I've said before, that one of the things that we know that uh, prisons do and the whole prison industrial complex does is to locate prisons in rural areas so that financially it benefits the immediate surrounding area, but also it's a burden 
on the families of uh, prisoners to be, you know, located two, three, four hours away from their loved ones. So it's not just the isolation within the prison, but it's the isolation that extends out of the prison to families and loved ones who can't visit easily. I mean, the only way you can get to Frackville, you got to have a car. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the bottom line. Yeah. There's no mm-hmm. bus there. There's no train. There's a, you got to have, you know, get there by bus. And he's only been there since April of this year when he was moved from death row. And that's and, and that's part of the the the, the strategy. Well, it, it's it's a mind game. I mean, I mean, just little things like we we wanted to take a picture with Mumia. We got there because of the delay of going to this other prison. We got there like 15 minutes quote late, and we asked the guy, "Could we take a picture?" Anyway, so Mumia tried to get us to take a picture with him. He wanted it, in fact, and uh, they told us we were 15 minutes late. And they got Polaroid cameras. I mean, how can you be late? I mean, all you got to do is pick up the camera and take a picture. You know, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that's part of the whole game. And then, of course, you got to you, you have to come in there. If you have dollar bills, you've got to change them into the tokens that they use for the prisoners. And this is not only in Frackville, but I've visited prisons all over this country. It's the same way. And so you've got these tokens. But if you have dollar bills or five dollars, the machine won't take the dollar bills. You got to bring in quarters, you know, a handful of quarters yeah. so that you mm-hmm. can enjoy. So all of these things are these little psychological games that the prison industrial complex pay, you know, play, you know, on our soldiers who are in prison. Uh huh. Uh huh. Now, let me before before you describe your visit. Um, I know that there are many of us in the activist community who were involved in the Free Mumia movement very early, never expected that in 2012 he would still be alive. Yes. I mean... Mumia is 58 years old now. He's mm -hmm. 58 years old. And, um, And... I mean, there's a lot of things now, BJ, that we wouldn't didn't expect. Uh, you know, the you know the person who has been down for the longest, he's the longest uh, imprisoned political prisoner on this planet, is Rochelle McGee. You know, he's been down uh-huh. now for 49 years, and he's been and very ill over the last couple of yes, uh, he has. Yes, he uh, has. Because he's, he's 73 years old. He's 73 yes. years old. And uh, as far as we know, you know, you know, and I want your audience to be very clear, you know, that the United States officially does not recognize that there are any political prisoners in the United States. In other words, the U.S. government says we don't hold people for political reasons. And mm-hmm. so now we will point to people in other countries, like when Mandela was in, I mean, the list goes on. The sister Anwar, the one in um, just a little country over, not Burma, Myanmar. We'll point to other countries that hold political prison, but we don't acknowledge that we have them. So what the United States does very cleverly, of course, is to people that they know that they want in prison because of their political beliefs, they criminalize them first. 
Uh, the COINTEL Pro of the 70s and 60s is very good at doing this, and is still good at doing this. So they criminalize them, and then they arrest them, and then they put them in prison. So it's very important that if you call the government and say, say you know, do you have any political prisons? They'll say, no, we don't have political prisons, but we do have political prisons, and uh, we should recognize that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it really is a language that was created in uh, part of the, the language that was created uh, in the black power movement and came really came out of the Black Panther Party. It was part of the vocabulary, the language of activists of, of the 60s and 70s where this whole notion of political prisoner came. And it yeah. was even applied. It had even been applied uh, when Steve Biko in South Africa was murdered in his prison cell. Right. Um, and it was exported. And I, I think people need to understand the history that we have created comes also with the concepts and the and the language. No, so, no, absolutely. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I wanted to go ahead and um, move into. I mean, I was so excited when you told me weeks ago you were going to see him. I, I mean, I was beside myself because um, it really was his. The movement of free mumia has been a part of my entire young life. Okay. You know, it. I mean, it's it's been a part of my entire adult life, and so well, I was very excited to hear that you were that you were going to go visit him. Tell us about the visit, Doctor Wimbush. Well, the visit, as I said, and I, you know, it, it, it's something that I was honored to just be asked to accompany. And you know, I had always wanted. I had written several letters like years ago, and on behalf of Mumia. Uh, you know, you had to go through the changes of, you know, being, uh, you know, semi-harassed. And, of course, they can make up rules. So if you protest some of the, you know, restrictions that uh, are, you know, are being placed on you at the time of entry into the prison, you can be, you know, well, we don't have, you don't have to come up here. You can, we don't have to let you see them. So, for example, uh, the opera had on a, you know, a, a very nice um, mud cloth dress, and you know from Molly, and she, you know, they were. She was told, "Well, you can't go in there without your sleeves on," even though it was very modest. So the guy at the first prison said, "Just throw a coat over your your shoulders when you go in," which we, we you know, I had a coat in the car, and we did that. When we got to the second prison where Mumia was, of course, they uh, said that she couldn't come in. So she literally had to go outside, uh, you know, get some clothes, go back inside, and then change in order to see them. And then we saw, of course, uh, women dressed much more scantily. I mean, I wouldn't even like to use the term scantily with the uh, opera, but much more scantily dressed, but they were white women. And so they uh-huh. got in dressed very provocatively, but, of course, 
you know, a sister couldn't get in that was dressed very modestly. So, um, you know, we got in and, you know, Mumia came out and Diafra told me this was her third visit with him. She said that was the first time he didn't say welcome to hell because while he was on death row, that's how he greeted everyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, In our feature clip. Exactly. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, we sat and talked, you know, you know, a lunchroom type of atmosphere. Uh, all eyes were the guards. Of whenever he gets a visit, all guards come out there. It's like they've got a lot of prisoners in there. It's a fairly large prison of like 2,000-something-odd uh, inmates. But they really pay attention when you come there to see him. They want to know who you are and all of this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The, the, his, the eyes were on him constantly, on us constantly. Um, Mumia was, you know, in good spirits. You know, you know, I had nothing to compare him with because this was my first visit with him, but he's in very good spirits. Um, he, he told us, and I'm not going to disclose everything because, I, you know, I don't, you know me, I don't trust phones and stuff. But he, he did. He did say that uh, he. This was a better place. If you know, I'm reminded of Les McCann's song about compared to what, to what? Than being on mm-hmm. death row. Uh, it has a high level of a Muslim population, which he says usually means a better, you know, atmosphere, atmosphere. with mm-hmm. the presence, you know, presence of Muslims there. He said it was a much younger population and a far less violent place. So compared to what he felt that he was in a better place, uh, one of I think one of the most striking things that you know that I he said to me, and again I'm not going to disclose everything that he said to us, but he said that the one thing that he had retained from his youth was his sense of humor, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, Mumia was making us laugh. I mean, he 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 has an attitude that. You know that mentally he is not in prison. I mean, he knows that he is physically, but and I mm-hmm. think that's what really irritates you know uh, those who guard, keep in prison. You know, are political prisoners that they're defiant mentally and psychologically, and of course legally and doing other things to agitate. <clears throat> and he he is aware of that and. He, and the, the idea that he says that he is, is very happy that he has a sense of humor, for me, it was just remarkable. Because mm-hmm. I don't know how I could be in prison for 30 years for a crime I did not commit and mm-hmm. still retain a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. That would be very and, difficult. And, and, be, and be hated so. You know, I have followed uh, him on Twitter since the beginning of Twitter. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And... The comments that come through uh, on his Twitter feed, yeah. they're people uh, un- unbelievable who who clearly know nothing about the crime for which he was sentenced, charged. They know nothing about the climate under which he was charged, and the struggle that he the the court battles that he has been involved in in the face of global protests. So, exactly. you know, I mean, I don't know how you contained yourself. I just wouldn't have been able to contain myself um, in, in a visit such as this. 
But one of the questions that uh, I was burning to know, and and, uh, I hope you got a chance to get a sense of it um, as I asked you to, uh, about what he thought he has lost. I mean, you can see, you can see his uh, personality, his spirit coming through in so many of the photos and and his words. But um, I, I've always wondered what he felt that he has lost. Well, it, it's, it might be it's what you might expect. You know, the contact with family. I mean, it's painful that his brothers from, you know, move, that he can't, it's difficult to see them. Um, you know, he's obviously been writing and publishing and has contact more so than other political prisoners do, but there is still that human contact. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he, Biafra um, and I, he, he just, I mean, this is, keep in mind, this is the first time I ever met, met Mumia, and this is only her third time she, she, she's been in contact with him by mail and everything, but he was simply just glad to see both of us, you know, uh-huh. a big bear hug. And I think that human contact, um, the the fact that he knows that people are still fighting for his release, uh, I'll be at that big rally at Riverside Church on September 14th. 14th, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, Angela Davis and a bunch of Cornell West, a bunch of folk are going to be up there. I'm just going to be attending. But he likes to hear that people are you know, still remembering, and they know uh-huh. he knows that. And I think that's the kind of contact that makes and sustains him. Um, uh-huh. I'm, you know, as I said, we'll talk about just what I think we ought to be doing with our political prisoners, you know, in a minute. But I still, you know, it's the whole idea of just being isolated for so many years. He's got much more freedom, if in, in quotation marks, in this prison. He says this place is far less dangerous than where he was. And that makes him feel more, and again, I hate to use some of these terms like relaxed, but given the circumstances, he feels more relaxed in this environment. Yeah. Well, why don't we take a break, and when we come back, we can talk uh, about the context of where where we're going with this rally on September 14th at Riverside Church in New York City, and we can talk more about some of your observations and uh, discussions with him. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush. He's the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University, and you should know it is the only institute of its type uh, dealing with the issues of inner city and urban culture, politics, and life, education, etc. And uh, we hope that you will stay with us. We'll be right back. Racism without racists. A United States federal judge, one of the most respected and powerful actors in the nation's entire judicial system, sends a joke to a close circle of friends. So far, so good. But the joke is a racist insult against both the sitting U.S. president and his mother. The word gets out, and the judge promptly apologizes and states he isn't a racist. Of course he isn't. 
A judge, someone sworn to protect the legal, civil, and constitutional rights of all American citizens, privately shares racist jokes about the President of the United States. But he's not a racist. Indeed, if the media is any measure, the only people portrayed as racist these days are black people, like Minister Louis Farrakhan or the late Dr. Khalid Abdul-Muhammad. A few years ago, I saw a man standing in a Ku Klux Klan robe announce on a nationally televised talk show that he wasn't a racist. When no one is racist, then racism becomes invisible. It becomes the province of hypersensitive blacks who are called racist when they point out racism. And meanwhile, beyond symbol, lies a reality as bitter and as repressive as ever before for millions. Question. What do you call a judge who makes racist statements? Answer. Your Honor. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. Our common ground. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. We'll be right back, and I'll be listening for you. Whatever we deny or embrace for, so Underneath everything we are, underneath everything we do, we are all people, connected, interdependent, united. And when we reach out a hand to one, we can influence the condition of all. That's what it means to live united. Where spirit matters. Across the board, the reality of racism, the part it is playing in frustrating the aspirations of millions of black children all across this country through poverty, through inferior public schooling, through poor health care, etc., and recognize the part that racism plays in that, or, 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 or we aren't. And if we aren't going to recognize it for them, then we're not going to make any excuses about policy failures in the White House either. If it ain't no excuses for them, it ain't no excuses for him. If they can, if they can face the hell that they're catching and still be expected to succeed, then damn it, we expect to get a public option. And we expect to see some social justice. And we expect to be some, see something done about the plight of the poor. Don't give me that the economy is too bad. You know why? Because we got no excuses. Because we it's a zero-sum game. We believe. Only on TruthWorks Network. Your Wednesdays just got better. Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. Wednesdays, 10 p.m., where spirit matters.
our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for staying with us on Our Common Ground. We're here each Saturday, 10 p.m. And don't forget to join our TruthWorks Network, Black Voice Collaborative, home of the Alpha Show Fridays at 10 p.m. and Soul of Fire Wednesday, 10 p.m. Working While Black, special six-week series on black and employment discrimination coming on August 27th, Mondays, 10 p.m. Empowering Talk Radio Broadcast. Now let's get bold, brave, black. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground, where we are for the race and of the race. Our guest tonight, Dr. Raymond Wimbush, and we're talking with him about his visit with Mumia Abu-Jamal, and uh, it, Ray, it just seems like it was just absolutely riveting uh, to be able to uh, have such a conversation, um, to, to be able to touch real history and, and the evidence of our history and what it means and to bring, uh, be able to frame it uh, in real struggle uh, context. Ray, are you with us? It looks like we might have lost Dr. Wimbush, and he will call back in. For those of you who are listening, Our Common Ground is here each Saturday at 10 p.m. We are the producers of uh, TruthWorks Network, and we've got some wonderful programming uh, on our Black Voice Collaborative. Um, it starts on uh, Friday night with the Alpha Show at 10 p.m., Wednesday evenings with Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson, and coming up beginning August 27th on Mondays at 10 o'clock for six weeks, a special six-week uh, program series on working while black. Let's see if this is Dr. Wimbush calling back in. Um, I'm not sure what's happening here, but we also want to welcome all of our um, uh, friends and listeners in our chat room. Dr. Don is there. India Declare of the India Declare Show, which broadcasts here at Blog Talk Radio, Monday through Friday at 11 o'clock, the I Declare Show. Uh, Michelle is with us, and Sister Natty Reb, and I am always so happy uh, to see her when she is with us. I feel emboldened and empowered with my sister by my side. Navoxar is with us, and YJ, uh, 
and we have many special guests uh, in our chat room and house music lover uh, from Chicago is also with us. And Lee, Dr. Can you Wimbush hear me now? is back. Yes, I can hear you now. You sound like uh, one of those telephone commercials. <laughs> but thank you so much, Dr. Wimbush, for being with us. Yeah, I would try to get a better phone, but I think I'm going to have to stick with the cell phone. Yeah, and I heard your question about, I mean, I think there's a history of it. You know, the frustration, I want to be very honest with you. I think the frustration we have, that I have, and I've talked to others about this, is that it is good that we keep the awareness of our political prisoners in front of audiences, uh, in front of government officials, in front of private people, I mean, at our rallies, in our organizations. But I think sometimes that we lose sight, is is this all we can do? Um, I've signed uh, hundreds of petitions, and that's not an exaggeration, for causes that I believe in, particularly as they relate to our political prisoners. But I still ask the question, you know, is that all we can do? Um, we're coming up on the first anniversary of the murder of Troy Davis. And, we, you know, I know we're going to have celebrations and commemorations and candlelight ceremony. And I'm not trying to be cynical, but I still ask, as somebody said to me, is that all we can do? Yeah, yeah. And, We've got and, to and get I, past the sentimentality right. of, the prison industrial complex, and our judicial system. I mean, you know, one of the things that I always feared about Mumia is that people felt like, oh, wow, he's being an activist and a warrior from prison. Well, when the lights go out and the terrorism encases you, there's nothing romantic about being a political prisoner, and there is nothing yeah. sentimental about. I, I, I share your cynicism. There's nothing sent. Uh, there's there's nothing real about saying, "Oh, it's the first year of the anniversary of uh, of um, uh, Troy Davis, or the first anniversary of Trayvon Martin." Because we really have proven ourselves when Trayvon Davis was executed, I felt like I was an impotent human being. That there, that there was something that we could have done that we did not do because the injustice was so big. It was so deafening yet screaming at the same time. Well, you, you know, I think so you're right, and and that impotence, I think, sort of among a lot of activists. Now, I'm going to cite two good examples of us overcoming, if you please, political prison. The first one is Geronimo uh, Dijaga, or you know, Geronimo Pratt, mm-hmm. and the second one is Asada Shakur. You know, one. Stayed in prison, Geronimo, for many, many years until he was freed and then moved to Tanzania. In fact, I'm going to be in Tanzania next week uh, and mm-hmm. hopefully will visit the village that he helped establish. Uh-huh. And, then, and then Asada, of course, 
escape prison. She was literally broken out of prison, and she's been in Cuba, Cuba. You know, for many, mm-hmm. many years. But then I say, well, who else can we cite like that? You know, mm-hmm. here in in Baltimore, as you know, Baltimore has, you know, Marshall Eddie Conway, you know, he's mm-hmm. been down mm-hmm. for so many years. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got people, uh, Sundiata Coley, who's out from Baltimore in Cumberland, Maryland, two and a half hours from here. And these brothers have been down for years, for decades. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a frustration that I have that, you know, like, is this all we can do? Mm-hmm. You know, and and, and even in our chat room, um, Sister Marpessa is in our chat room, and, and God bless her, and I feel such personal blessing to have her with us tonight. She is one of the most long-term, hardest-working activists yes, in absolutely. regard to political prisoners in this country. That's right. She has kept it before us. She has kept us updated. I mean, I have personally been able to reconnect with um, Eddie Conway and and Eddie Griffin because she kept us in touch with what who these people were and what was happening with them, and she does that even uh, as we speak. And, I mean, yeah, you know, and Montez has been doing this work for years, many, many years, and 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 I think, and that's the way we all should be working. You know, I, I guess the the frustration I have is, the, what else can we do? What else can yeah, we do? Yeah, I, you know, I I keep saying that injustice is so systemic when it comes to our people, that we have to take the system, and as Dr. Vanilla Randall will remind us, and stop relying upon the same system that continues to offer us this kind of injustice. We have to, we have to, it's almost like it's a concrete wall, and we've got to get an armored car, and simply run through the wall. Now, what does that well, mean? Well, you're saying it figuratively, but I'm not. There's certain things I'm not going to say. But I, I would encourage your listeners to look at the case of Shadrach Minkins that occurred in 1850. Um, you know, we all know about Marin County, and I don't want to go into that, but I, I think that we better put a lot of things on the table that some of us, frankly, aren't willing to talk about. And mm-hmm. and, and I think that those are the type of things that, you know, otherwise we're just going to continue to see our political prisoners die in prison, mm-hmm. uh, be and relocated. And it is a lesson to our children. That's one yes. of the things that we have to get a hold of. That's right. That's right. As long as Mumia sits in prison, as long as Mar- Marissa Alexander sits in prison. Right, that's right. As long as we allow these things, our children are learning the lesson of impotence. We right. have no vacation, no holiday from the kind of and level of activism that we have to get. We, we have to make Eric Holder think we are unrelenting. That's right. That's right. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I think that one of the things that uh, you we've got see, I think that the economic boycott of things is an underutilized tool that we never think about having or we or we don't use it enough. And and you gotta hit people in economic you know, like some of these prisons. We know that some of these prisons are they're they're private. You know, mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. do we do about that? I, I think we gotta target certain things that that will hurt you know, and 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 really say we're gonna put so much pressure on this institution that, in one sense, may not even be connected, you know, to, to you know the incarceration of our political prisoners, but it would put pressure on them to do something about it. But there's got to be different ways, and you know, I really hope, you know, that this meeting in New York in a couple of weeks, which is supposed to be pretty big, I hope mm-hmm. that we. Not just cite the data, who we are and who they are, and what we, you know, another petition, but then we talk about some alternative mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are listening, we're talking about on Friday, September 14th at 7 p.m. at Riverside Church in New York City. There is going to be a huge gathering to end mass incarceration, no solitary confinement for Mumia. Uh, to close down Attica, to free Mumia and all our political prisoners, and for those in the New York area or on the on the East Coast, uh, Riverside Church is located at 91 Claremont Avenue, uh, which is near. If you're going to take the the train in or the plane in or however you're going to get it, it's uh, right near the number one train, 116th Street. Our 125th Street, Riverside Church. GPS. Yeah, definitely, and I'll see everybody up there. But I want to give a tangible. Mumia's in Pennsylvania. Has been in Pennsylvania forever. We know that right now that Pennsylvania has one of, and, and the the, uh, the court just last week ruled about this voter ID. What if black members of the Philadelphia uh, Phillies, the Philadelphia Eagles? The Pittsburgh Steelers and Pittsburgh Pirates would have said, "We are not going to play football." Play. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. I know this is see this is such a radical thing. You know, those of us who remember Tommy Smith and you know uh, Jose and all of them back in the day, but what if they said something like that? That they said, "We're going to take a political stand as sports figures that we've got to get Mumia out of jail." And and, and and we are not going to play in the NFL, in the NBA, the Philadelphia 76ers unless we do that. I think that we've got to apply pressure at a lot of levels that with organizations, individuals, corporations that may not even be connected in, in a, you know, in a direct sense, but maybe in a philosophical sense to the imprisonment of our people and to laws that we know are unjust. And mm-hmm, I think that mm-hmm. we don't think about that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with writing a petition, nothing wrong with that. we got to keep doing that. But what if somebody said, I'm going to work on the 76ers not playing basketball and yep. really put pressure on them? Mm-hmm. I don't think we think outside of the box when we talk about our political prison. I actually heard someone talk about this 
today on the radio. We better mm-hmm. make connections where there are no connections about our political prisoners, about unjust laws. We've got mm-hmm. to do that. Right. And and, and what if nationally uh, all the people who, black people who believe in justice decided to clog major highways on exactly. a Monday morning? That's right. The Schuylkill, the Schuylkill uh, Highway, exactly. 400 people, stopping people from getting into Center City in uh, Boston. Let, I mean, me it, another, let me give you another one. This young brother that just was murdered by the police in Little Rock, Arkansas, they said that he was had his arms, you know, he handcuffed behind his back and shot himself in the head. We know that's a lie. But what corporation is located in Arkansas? Headquarters of Walmart is there. You see, uh-huh, and, and uh-huh. why couldn't we make a tie with saying we're going to get justice for this young brother through Walmart, you know, and stuff like that. So I think that what we've got to do is, and I'm not saying again, we've got to do the petitions, we got to do letter writing, we got to do vigils, protests, whatever. But I think we got to start thinking out of the yeah. box about and we gotta really stop- putting. Right. We we got, you're right. We got to stop thinking out of the uh start getting out of the box and thinking on our own. Because exactly. you know, one of the things that uh we need to be doing is to, is to send it, if if you're going to send some money to Barack Obama for his re-election campaign, you need to say I'm sending you $10, but I'm sending Mumia 50. I That's would right. send you more, but Mumia's in prison. Right. And, and, see, <laughs> and see, have you ever noticed, BJ, that white folks will have their litmus test issues? Uh, like, what's this idiot that makes these guys sign the Grover Norquist? He'll yes. make them sign a pledge not to raise taxes. And, then, and, and, and they better sign it. They better sign it. Why don't we have these issues that do you and stand up in our meetings and say to these politicians, do you support the release of all political prisoners in the United States? Um, and we're not talking about something philosophical, but and and don't let them say, well, it depends on which political prisoner it is. You said, and then if they do say that, Mumia Abu Jamal, yeah, or Sundiata Akola. Something like that. Say something, and if they say no, so we're not going to vote for you. We're not going to put yes. you in office. And, and now, white folks will do that on issues of abortion. They'll do it on issues of gay marriage. They'll do it on issues of. Uh, they're doing it right now on just birth control. And, and so I'm saying that we have to start doing things like that because, and it doesn't mean that I will not keep signing a petition or anything else like that, but I think we've got to go way beyond where we are right now in terms of helping our political prisoners. Well, I think, you know, there's a reality to this, Ray, and let's talk about this for It's a very painful reality, and that is that um, that we have lost our ability to empathize and to see ourselves in the face of people like Mumia and the young brother that was shot, uh, was murdered in a police vehicle in Little Rock, Arkansas. 
Uh, um, if you know, I often wonder, and here comes my cynicism. And you know, Ray, you bring it out in me. I'm not no- normally cynical. <laughs> you just bring it out in me. And 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 if we hadn't seen photographs of uh, Trayvon Martin in a baseball uniform or playing football or hugging his dad, I wonder how we would have seen him. Right, right. I know, I know. You know, I hate to pose that question, but, you know, this is speaking truth to power and ourselves. Well, it is. And, and, and see, I, I think that we've got to call into Tash. You know, Harry Belafonte, you know, a lot of people are very critical, a lot of young people are very critical about what he said about Beyonce and Jay-Z a couple of weeks ago and stuff like that, talk about their selfishness. But we did see, for example, with Trayvon Martin, we actually saw, and I, I mean, I couldn't believe it, we saw the Miami Dolphins, I'm, I'm sorry, the Miami Heat, actually, you know, have that picture of them in their hoodies, you know, in solidarity yeah. of this stuff. So, it's, you know, I think that it, within black athletes, black entertainers, there's this seed that they know the right thing to do but they're terrified of the consequences in doing it. And and I don't think we support them. We just want them to shoot the ball, you know, run the football, but we don't support them. As, and we could, I think we've got to put pressure on them. I think that we've got to pick corporations and say, we know you're not connected to this, but we're not going to do X for you until you take a stand relative to Mumia Abu-Jamal. Or, or other political prisoners in this country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the are the whole concept of flushing out the hypocrisy of this government saying that there are no political prisoners. Right, they'll tell you that, mm-hmm. and, or they this will. government saying that they don't grant posthumously uh, pardons, like the Obama administration just said about Marcus Garvey about a year ago. I mean, you know, and and people say, oh, well, you're criticizing, you know, the president, Obama, you know, he's a black guy. But, you know, you got to, we have to start taking some decided stance because we, you know, we've seen too many of our political prisoners die in and out of prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we've got to take some very dramatic stance, some very drastic stance about some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And and that takes me. Uh, kind of like to 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 steer us into a discussion about uh, black boys um, and 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 girls who now are uh, filling our prisons. You wrote your book, The Warrior Method: A Program for Rearing Healthy Boys, in two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. And you would think at some point that we would have integrated this effective and successful method into public school curriculums, public school programs all over this country. And I know you were on the call at the White House with the new African American Education Initiative, and I know the, the brother that's that's running that and Prima and, and, 
right and 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 we all want it to work or whatever but we have the answers but we refuse to adopt it's almost as though we skirt around the real answers that lead to successful results well you know, I'm going to quote Elijah Muhammad, and I'm not a member of the nation, but Elijah Muhammad said years ago, 95% of African people's problems is organization or organizing. And we got plenty of organizations. You know, there's not a week to pass somebody says, well, I'm going to form an organization to do this. And, again, there's nothing wrong with that. But we don't organize enough. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and I think, that, for example, white supremacy is constantly organizing. Since I wrote Warrior Method, we saw just this past week how in Mississippi, Meridian, Mississippi, young black boys and girls, and I'm not talking about 18, 19 years old, I'm talking about 13, 14 years old, if they uh, talk back to the teacher, hit somebody in class, they don't go to the principal's office office anymore. They go to prison, and they said, and the, and the Meridian City is saying this will give them shock treatment. And the the, the um, uh, Justice Department is intervening on that. So the prison to pipeline, you know, I'm sorry, the pipeline to prison by way of school. It's right now you can literally mess up in school, and then the next day in Meridian, Mississippi, be in prison. And so yes. we, we white supremacy racism is very serious it is very deliberate and it is unrelenting to make sure that people of color and black people specifically will not quote get ahead or anything else like that it is consistent we aren't consistent because we fail to organize a lot of times well the the other is that we are we organize around our convenience rather than yeah. organizing around uh, a, st- a stated goal or mission or objective. And I think that is problematic. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm sure you have noticed, that even in um, the wonderful world of Facebook, I see black people peeling off into all of these special groups and stuff where yeah, no. uh, uh, you know where it's ice where where we're starting to isolate ourselves even as activists even on on Facebook they have some um uh, some utility but at the same time you cannot organize without a strategy and a lot of the groups are duplicating themselves. And I mean, I use Facebook, but I, and I get I get membership in these groups. Some of them I spend time in, and I'm not going to criticize. I'm looking on the internet right now. Doc Don just wrote: most prominent black organizations are compromised by money and and corporate dollars specifically. That's true. Uh, I think the the internet can be an organizing tool. It has been an organizing tool with the Jenna Six. Uh, with Troy Davis, and it can be you. So I don't have anything, you know, just, you know, critical yeah. about it. I just think that we've got to start saying we've got enough organizations. What are these organizations doing about mm-hmm. 
X, Y, and Z. And um, Z, exactly. You know me that I, because of the stuff that I do. I believe at the head of every black organization, there should be a, a, a demand and a, or whatever you want, built into the Constitution, a demand for reparations. Because for mm-hmm. me, that's the ultimate thing that all of us are trying to repair this damage that white supremacy and the transatlantic slave trade has done to us. So I think, but I think that we've got to be more deliberate in how we organize, and we got to think differently about our political prisoners, and and in terms of saying, okay, we've tried this, we've tried petitions, and those, and we've tried meetings, and we've got streets named after Mumia in France, and all that is well and good, but maybe we ought to do this, you know, maybe we ought to. Uh, tell 7-Eleven that we're going to start boycotting everybody outside. We're going to pass our leaflets in front of you unless you take a stand about Mumia Abu-Jamal. I mean, it's right. got to be things that are that will hurt where people don't even think they're connected, but we got to make those connections ourselves. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. But I think the bigger thing is that we have got to think bigger. We have got to believe that we can do bigger. We can be yes. more bold than we have been. We, I mean, I think that we have to understand that struggle is every day and that those things for which we struggle, if we're not surrounded by them, then they are not worth struggling. All of us are surrounded by the issues of the, of the prison industrial complex. All of us are surrounded by the ineffective and and neglect of education of our children. All of us are surrounded by people who are struggling to find jobs, to be able to feed their families, and to hold their families together. Those are the things that are worthy of everyday struggle for every black person in this country, Ray, we've got a lot of callers, uh, and I wanted—I do want to take some call. Let's take some Definitely. calls. Yes. Uh, Three o two, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for calling our common ground with Dr. Raymond Wimbush. I think three o two. Yes. Hello. How are you doing? You're How's on the air. How's it going? How are you doing? Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can. Okay, very good. This is um, Dr. Jahi Issa. Um, you may be familiar Dr. with Dr. Issa me. from Delaware. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, thank you, my dear beloved brother. It's so good to hear your voice. I was just talking about you yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great to be on the show with you. And uh, I'm a great personality, intellectual, like Dr. Wimbush. He's done a lot of work, and the community needs to... Um, uh, I'm acknowledge him for that. Um, what, just one thing I wanted to add: <clears throat> while working at the National Archives and Records Administration in D.C., I was um, under the senior African American archivist. Um, we put together a guide. It's really a book. It's about 600 pages on the civil rights and Black Power movement in the National Archives. Um, I think this is important for historical records 
so that we can begin to understand the patterns and techniques that are used, not just by what we call COINTEL Federal, but by state. Like, oh, yeah. for instance, um, your show, um, I can almost bet you that um, you're out of Boston, Massachusetts. If you go to this, the Boston State Criminal Div- Intelligence Division, they will have a file on you. Now, oh, I'm sure. State, yeah. <laughs> now, what, what's interesting about it is that state foyers are quite different from that of federal. Federal foyers take about um, two years. Uh, state, most states, like in Delaware, it's just two weeks. Right. right, and so you can find out. Even you, Doctor Wimbush in Maryland, the same. Already technique. have. You, you already have yours. Well, okay, what I did with my FOIA, and for those of FOIA, the Century Freedom of Information Act, uh, about three years ago, I wrote the federal. I haven't done the state, but I wrote the federal government asking for, the, and you know, they only give you exactly what you ask for. But I thought that my FOI would would be maybe four or five pages long. It was 77 pages long. And exactly. it was absolutely shocking that places I had been, interviews, BJ, that I had done, and other things, those things were all listened to. Uh, you know, there were people that I frankly thought that I could trust, that I wound up. So I, I have told African activists whenever in this country you should all get your Freedom of Information Act folder at the federal and the state level. And you have to be very, very careful how you write the request yeah. for FOIA. It has yeah. to Freedom of Information Act is a law where people right. are trained. Lawyers in the state and in the federal government are trained how to skirt and how to refuse the information. That's so right. you have to be very, very careful about how you write the FOIA. And, That's right. um, and And I think for those of you who are listening, uh, Dr. Jahi uh, Iza has joined us from, he is a professor um, well, at Delaware State University who was arrested for uh, supporting 20 students protesting uh, the president's management style at the HBCU, and because of his outspokenness about, he's a he was a faculty member of the Department of History, Political Science, and Philosophy. Is that correct? Right, right, right. Um, uh, he was fired, uh, and, um, and arrested. he was arrested, <laughs> and then fired. Yeah. But you're you're absolutely right. Um, um, I mean, I have no idea how I um, – I do have an idea of what my records contain, but I, I do know that when you request, when you submit a FOIA, uh, the other thing that every person should do is to get a record of their a, – a formal criminal record. What do you call that thing? I'm, I'm trying to think of what the name of it is. But in that record, it will show inquiries that have been made about you. All actors right. should have that. Right. 
and, and I think that you want the brother. It's good to hear your voice, brother. And it, it's it's. I think that we've got to be aware that BJ. At one point, I would disagree. I think you'll be surprised at what's in your foyer. Uh, there was something I knew that would be there, you know. But there uh-huh. were some other things that you'll you'll be very surprised at. There's a couple things I don't want to say on the air, but yeah, that yeah, thing extends yeah. outside of the country because I've been outside this country on many, many occasions, mm-hmm. and I could tell you a, almost a horror story that happened to me in London just about two years ago, and and mm-hmm. it's connected to this stuff. So we've got to, and it's not being paranoid or anything else like that. But no, we it's not. That the, the government does not want. African people to organize any place. Exactly. And, you know, and, and, it's really interesting that you say that, and um, Marpessa has uh, has indicated in our chat room that Mumia's foyer went back to the age of 14. My foyer goes back to the age of 17. Well, a a brother and I organized we were home from college for the summer and we organized a black student high school student because there was no college a black high school student organization citywide organization during the summer months and that was the first entry uh of my record in the federal archives because they archive this stuff yeah they absolutely do they absolutely yeah. do well, thank you, brother, for calling, you know, and, and thanks for That's a very good point that you bring up. And good luck to you, too, brother. All right. And, thanks a lot. And, Doctor, I have a telephone number now. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I know uh, Ricardo um, said that we're going to host the show, so uh, we'll be a yes, part of that, yes, that whole thing. So I look forward to that. And, yeah. and Dr. Wimbush, I, I look forward to you uh, contacting me. I'll send you another email. Okay, for sure, absolutely. And maybe okay. the three of us can get together on September 14th. Oh, I'm Because yeah. I'm going to be in New York City as well. I'm okay, also good. going to be, uh, uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, the uh, State of the Black World Conference in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, in on October 21st. Don't let me give you. I, I'll I'll get the information. And Ron Daniels, Dr. Ron Daniels, is going to be with us sure. next week to talk about it. Thank you so much. I am so honored to have you call the show, and I look forward to our affiliation as we roll out wor- working while black. All right. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a nice day. Thank you. <laughs> and you guys stay with us. Uh, we're going to. Um, Continue this discussion with Dr. Uh, Wimbush. We're going to take a break, and and um, when we come back, I, I really want to get into uh, Dr. Wimbush more of the strategies because I think that we're spending so much time worrying about what Mitt Romney is doing and who Paul Ryan. Ry- Paul Rand is, or whatever his Ryan is. Uh, I've been calling him Paul Rand so long. <laughs> um, uh, and we and we need to really start looking at who is the superintendent of our schools, who sits on our school boards. We need yeah, to start absolutely. having conversations with our mayors. Um, um, you know, I, I just think that. Uh, 
our inner we we have so few resources that our energies have to be placed in the right place. That's not to say that electoral politics is not important. It is important. To vote is important because people died. It's it's like um, if I were to burn down a house, the house that my my parents left me, and they worked all of their lives to be able to leave me something, and I burned it down. So, right. but, you know, so and and also to understand the exegesis of voter suppression. I'm Janice Graham, and you're listening to Our Common Ground nine one six. I see you, and when we come back from this break. Uh, we're going to take your call. It's going to be a very short break. Um, You're listening to Our Common Ground, and we're in our last segment. And it went really fast. (laughs) I will be right back. What we see before our eyes. The sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this economy. And people are sabotaging this country. You're listening to The Alpha Show on TruthWorks Network. This is how we do it. Black people have lost their minds because what they are doing is simply giving a wink and a nod, stepping back. Quick on Thursday, House Republicans criticized the Justice Department for challenging voter ID laws. <laughs> the critical lawmakers believe that the Department of Justice is acting in a partisan manner and that Department of Justice action shows that the Obama administration is more concerned with winning in November only at TruthWorks Network. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is how we do it. It's Friday night. The Alpha Show. We hope you'll join the Alpha Show on Friday nights, 10 p.m. at TruthWorks Network, where truth must be spoken more than once. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste.
And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, Dr. Raymond Wimbush. Uh, Dr. Ray, we always have such good surprises at Our Common Ground in this sanctuary. I, I just, I, I just love it. That call was so unexpected and so wonderful to have. But we're going to go back to our phones because people want to talk with you. Nine one six. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Hi, this is Suzanne Brooks calling from Women of Color Day. Suzanne Brooks, the extermination of women, of the constructive extermination of women of color. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's good to hear from you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, of course, I'm a Pennsylvanian, so I have followed what's happened to Mumia through the years. And um, it always strikes a nerve when I when I can hear about that. So I uh, thank your guest for doing that visit, um, it is just more horrible than one can imagine the, the kinds of torture and uh, lied about incarcerations that are taking place. Uh, I saw a figure recently that there's 80,000 uh, such people that are incarcerated, men, women, and children, that are subjected to um, those isolation techniques. Yes, absolutely. And, and so, to me, a lot of people are really um, not only uh, victims of long-term discrimination or what have racism, sexism, but also the onslaught of um, propaganda that began way back with the Jim Crow strategy of never letting people know that there were escapes so that they wouldn't think there was any hope. And now that has been, in my opinion, um, refined so that people turn on TV and look for news, and there's no news. They're not news shows. Yeah. Um, you you hear the weather three times. Now they even put the weather first. <laughs> they hit the news. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's the sports, and then there's the traffic, and then there's the um, anchors as comedians. And by mm-hmm. the time they get through all of that, there really isn't any news, and people right. don't recognize it. But some of the comments that um, I was listening, and I've been going between two programs because Filet Chianesu from Million Women March is on her blog talk radio show right now, um, remembering Marcus Garvey. Um, I wanted to just say um, I was thinking as you're talking about organizing, and for me – one of the other unspoken things that I think are inhibiting our organizing is that within our organizations, most organizations of color are very sexist. Yeah. And, and un, as long as men of color are oppressing women of color, then 50% of the team is being shut out. And that is a mega problem for us. I say the same thing to white women-dominated organizations about racism. And therefore, the people who should be allies are not. And I'd be interested in hearing your guests talk about that because um, there really are a lot of organizations. We don't get any press, number one. And uh, secondly, um, we have this tendency either to blame ourselves or blame everybody else in our group except ourselves. Um, and, and because of the propaganda, people do not recognize allies. Uh, I have worked, uh, for example, on the voter 
reg- um, redistricting commission. I didn't get on there. I applied for it. And although I have a lot of education and experience, I was one of the first people screened out as um, with a unanimous decision that I lacked any skill of any kind that could be considered relevant for this activity. That just happened to me again, and I applied for Poet Laureate in Sacramento. And it isn't really that people are not trying to meet with people. There are elected officials that have registration for appointments online, and I register to meet with them, and as soon as they see it's my name, they cancel them. And there are elected officials here whose staff have told me that in their lifetimes I will never get an appointment. And so it isn't simply that we um, aren't trying to do that, but in the same way that I have been 15 years without a full-time job, and everybody knows it because I say it everywhere I go because I'm being retaliated against for standing up for 38 uh, employees and students at the state university, people dismiss it. People in power dismiss it. People in the community dismiss it. People in organizations, they simply don't want to hear it. And so there's so many of us like that, um, and I'm not sure how. It's like when when you say, oh, they're going to cut $10 million of food stamps. Well, what are people going to eat? Right. Well, well, I mean, no, you're absolutely correct. And, I mean, you know, there's so much history about uh, sexism extending so far back within African organizations. And and I think, you know, Joy Leary, Joy DeGruy in her book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, talks about how the resi- one of the residual effects of enslavement was, you know, when we did form those organizations, black men, quote, didn't feel like men. And so they wanted, because they hadn't been allowed to, quote, be men, and so they took a lot of this stuff out on women, and we still see it reflected in many of our organizations uh, today. Um you know, and sometimes, you know, it's it's amazing when you bring it up as a man, brothers will come up to you and say, man, why are you bringing up that we don't have enough sisters here? I said, because we don't have enough sisters here. You know, I mean, you got to, you got to, I think you got to advocate for it. you got to agitate about it. If you're a sister, you got to say it. Like you, you, apparently you have been saying it. And I think we got to do that at all levels of our organization. We really do. And I'm not just saying that in a patronizing way. Because, like you said, we cut out 50% of our people when we don't do that. So we got to do it. I mean, I always, because I've been in the in the reparations that the, the greatest reparation advocates, Callie House, uh, Queen Mother Moore, and more recently, Deidre Farmer-Pilmer, are all women. I mean, without the in the reparation struggle, without women, there wouldn't have been a reparation struggle. You know, and I think the brothers need to hear that, and sisters need to hear that. But I think that we should also not let the brothers off the hook by saying that this is just a consequence of slavery, because there was sexism before in Africa too. We need to not pretend like, well, this only came with slavery. And and I think when we do that, because I never hear any excuses for black female behavior in that way. And and it really is not an excuse if you are if if the brothers are slaves to take out their frustration on the women who are also slaves. 
Um, it doesn't make any sense. And it's the same in war today, all over the world, where people are in war, they rape the women. They rape their own women. Every war that's going on, this is happening. And, and that has nothing to do. They're not fighting the women. They just use war as an excuse on every side to attack women. But there, there is something else that is an underpinning of all of this, and I'm, I'm glad you made that point, Suzanne. Um, and, and that is that a weapon of choice, of oppression, is depression. If you make when 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 I was in Rwanda, one of the things that the women who were victims of sexual violence as part of the genocide said consistently is that the rapist and the terrorist always said to them, I will kill your sons, I will kill your fathers, I will kill your husbands, but I will not kill you. I will rape you so that you will die of sadness. And that is, and, and if we look at that as an underpinning of terrorism and oppression against people of color across the globe, if we look at that, we see how it is happening and playing out in our universities. We see how it's playing out in our neighborhoods. We see how it's playing out in our schools, our courts, and in our prisons. I, I the problem I have is women are always subjected to terrorism regardless of who wins. Mm-hmm. When 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 um, Zimbabwe became got their independence, it's the first thing they did was take away the right to vote of women. And so how do we account for that? Um when things seem to get better, even when but, but women Suzanne, have been... the underpinning of that, the undergird of all of that, is who raises the children. What do you mean? Women who are so, women who are so pressed down that they are unable to lift their children up. So but their the children... children not, well, wait, wait. But you're saying, but it isn't the job of women to lift their children. It is the job of parents to lift their children. I and we need to stop that. talking in those terms. It's not our responsibility alone. But Exactly. But at the end of the day, Suzanne, at the end of the day, most of the people who are full-time nurturers of the children in this country in our community are the women. I understand that, but but we need to stop talking as though that is normal, natural, unavoidable, and and for eternity. Because yeah, I, but, but let me ask you something. So let me ask you this: Do you think, you know, like I'm hearing what you said, like you know, now I, I still say about the issue of if you look at male-female relationships, men-women relationships in Europe and in Africa, even before enslavement, you certainly wouldn't say that those were identical, would you? 
because I find when when I'm in my trips to Africa, and if you look at the history of Africa, while you you may want to call it sexism, but there was far more balance between men and women in Africa. I, I don't see person. I don't see that, and I I know that oh, a lot really? of people. I don't see that. I've never seen that. I don't see it uh-huh. in the histories that I've read. Uh, women were were still property. Women did not have choices. That's you know, not true. Uh, the fact that you have dowries in every country uh-huh. where there's a dowry, that's the purchase of women. You ever heard of the Kentucky women in Africa? Uh, you know, I mean, you can I can you know, you can come up with some group that you think I don't know. That's irrelevant. It's what no, but that, it, no, it, it, well, it's relevant for us. To no, not you're trying to find. You know, that's the problem. Okay. You're rationalizing okay. sexism, and you're rationalizing okay. the role. You know, it's it's an ancient problem. I'm not saying well, that. I, 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 let me just say this: I fundamentally disagree with you when it says that the the the, the sexism that occurred in Europe. Is or, or or other parts of the world is all the same. I just don't agree with. I you. didn't say that. What I'm saying oh, is, what really I'm same. saying is, it's like people who say, "Oh well, you know, oppression by another person of color is not as bad as oppression by a white no, person." No, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, I didn't say that. sexism is sexism, no matter who does it. And and to those of us, to the woman who is raped. It doesn't matter what color the rapist is, or if it's her husband even. Rape is well, a rape. Well, Suzanne, um, on on one level, uh, I absolutely agree with you. But then, when I move to the, the 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 level of how how violence and terrorism and oppression is evolving in this country, uh, in across the globe, one of the things that I have to think is that uh, the game is up for all people of African descent who live on the continent, who are natives of the continent. The game is up. I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you look at the if you look at at the issue of, I mean, we had the the author of Fish on this show. If you look at the issue of rape and sexual molestation in our prisons against men. If you look at how in uh, Somalia and um, in, uh, in, uh, in parts of East Africa, how rape against men is, is, is now, I don't want to call it the nouveau kind of violence, but it happens. But rape has so, always happened in the prisons. In fact, people joke about it. You know, rape is horrible, no matter who is raped. Who, who is men, exactly. men rape who are raped. But, but, but you I agree see, with you that we have, in our community, we do have to come to terms with how men regard. I mean, I was, I was just talking to India Clare of the India Clare Show this afternoon about homophobia. That the whole issue of homophobia, one of the issues of homophobia in our community is somehow men feel that women are, that feminism is inferior and therefore when a man takes it on, that's part of the issue 
of homophobia. Suzanne, we've got to go. We've got to have you back on um, <laughs> uh, to to keep going through these issues. But thank you so much for your oh, call. You're welcome. Okay. Okay. Uh, Suzanne um, Brooks, and if you have not read her book, um, The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, you should. If you have not heard her discuss these issues, you can in the archives at Our Common Ground right here at Blog Talk Radio. Dr. Wimbush, we've got another caller, 111. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call with Dr. Raymond Wimbush. 111. Oh, I'm not sure who 111 is. Is that me? Yes, it is. I'm well, sorry. Hi, Janice. Ray. This is Jackie Williams calling from Albany, New York. Well, welcome, Jackie. So great hey, to hear Jackie. from you. <laughs> hey, we're Facebook friends. How are you doing? So- you had an accident. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Thank you for asking. Oh, just, good, because well, I saw I the car was repaired, but I didn't see you. <laughs> the car when I saw the car, my back is still attached to the rest of my body. Okay. So thank you for asking. I do want to follow up on something that Suzanne was talking about, and I wanted to maybe see if Ray, Dr. Winbush could uh, come in a little bit more when we're talking about the care and rearing of our children, of our youth, and the fact that so many of our men are currently incarcerated and more of our winning, more of our women are beginning to be incarcerated at the same rate. We have all of these children who are being unparented, unreared, being wards right. of the state, being in the foster care system. So I want to I want to lift that up and give you the opportunity to talk a little bit more about that and getting into the idea of we've got political prisoners who've been away for decades. We've got people who can't work, who can't find a job, who can't take care of themselves and or their families. So let's talk a little bit more about our children and our youth. Well, Jackie, you know, it's see, I never think, I've never thought that slavery had a pause, but people say, "Oh, that's an extreme view." You know, didn't you know? Didn't you know? Aren't we better off now than we were in 1865 or whatever? I don't think. I think all enslavement did, and Michelle Alexander talks about this a lot in her book about the new. She calls it the new Jim Crow, but it's really the old slavery. And so, with regards to our children. I don't see that much difference from what is occurring with our children today as occurred in 1845 in Mississippi. In fact, I gave the example earlier in this discussion about what's going on now in Meridian, Mississippi. Um, Roughly, I know this and found a conference at Harvard a couple of years ago um, that approximately – Forty to 50,000 men that are released every year, black men I'm talking about from prison, parole, have been raped. Um, we know that this is finding itself in the form of the high rate of infection with uh, black women who have the highest rate of infection of HIV. We also know that the children that uh, are having uh, you know, they're suffering because of all of this stuff. And, and we, we're seeing this whole thing in a very, as a psychologist, seeing it psychologically as how 
our children are being uh, conditioned, if you please, to really say, I'm going to be in jail. I know it's among young black bo- uh, boys. It, they, they're con- it's being the conditioned. They're, exactly. They're expecting to go to jail. It's becoming a rite of passage to go to jail. Um, let alone the number of women that are now having babies in jail. Because what we look at, B.J., is that the increase of women's imprisonment has primarily been because of status crimes, writing bad Mm -hmm. checks and so forth, because the economic support that a husband and wife can have together, boyfriend and girlfriend have together, is absent. So women are engaging in more... Uh, criminal behavior in quotation marks that has to do with money, just survival. So all of this has a ripple effect on our children. And then the other thing, we know that if you want to pinpoint 1981 as the beginning of the crack wars, which was about almost 30 years ago, or, or really it was 30 years ago, that these children that came of age during the crack wars of the 80s and even into the 90s are now parenting, and children are again suffering. Uh, what's her name um, that wrote Tomorrow's Tomorrow? Um, used to be, she's at Tougaloo right now. She used to be president of Howard. I'll call her name in a minute. But she was, uh, she was talking about the we used to have two-parent families, and then we went to one-parent family, and and now, as we see, we have no parent families. Here in Baltimore, we have one of the highest rates of, um, you know, drug, you know, addiction in the country. And we see a lot of black children right now who have both parents addicted. They're living a very marginal existence, is doing the best that they can. Um, Joyce Ladner is who I'm thinking about. Yeah. So, I think that we have two, one, and zero families. And, again, you know, there's a state of emergency in our families, Jackie. I mean, you work with foster parents. I've been trying to encourage black parents to say, well, you need to engage more foster parents if you if you have the time and you have the money. And sometimes if you don't have the money, um, you should still talk about being a foster parent, volunteer, and so forth. So it, it's, a, it's like picking up an elephant by the tail, all of this stuff. It really is. I mean, the whole idea, and I, you know, I don't, and I, I support what Suzanne was saying in terms of it not being solely the mother, even though if you look at statistics and all the rest of it, it looks as if women are still being afforded or blamed as being the primary caregiver. But as you just said, we have parentless families between the mentoring programs and foster care and adoption but even more importantly, the juvenile delinquent system, which gets us back into the whole lack of justice system and now at a juvenile level. We have got all of these young people without role models, without uh, without ways of going from, without having any passage ceremonies, without knowing which way to go, without hope. Here in Albany, New York, we have less than a 50% graduation rate. And of those who graduate, they're not prepared. They still have to go into remedial services to go to the community college. They're just Jackie, not ready. Jackie, you just, you just laid out the crisis. <laughs> they're not ready for college or a career. 
and uh, they just go to the street, and if the street leads to jail, so be it. If the street leads to the funeral home, so be it. That's mm-hmm. it. There is no hope. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as far as like our children, yes, we need to do a whole lot more for those who have been left as political prisoners and every other kind of prisoner for decades. So we've lost, We how many people have we lost who are not actually dead? The ones that are in prison, the ones that are in schools about to go to prison, the ones that are walking the streets and don't know where they're going to go. Exactly. But, but, but Jackie, you know, as you say, if, but see, it's funny how when we use the term genocide, that people say, oh, well, that's such a strong term. But I always say that the death of it's a young true. person, yes, the, 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 when we see, a, you know, a, a Trayvon Martin die or the brother in um, in um, Little Rock die, we lose a generation. We, we, we are being deprived of Trayvon's children who could have mm-hmm. been, for example, may have discovered a cure for cancer or HIV AIDS or something like that. And I always look at, you know, that favorite thing that we say about Native Americans always plan for seven generations. We have uh-huh. to look at the deaths in our community, the, 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 the rape of women, the rape of men. We have to look at all of this as hurting our generations to come after us. That's right. And I, that, that's why I think that, it's so important for me, at least, and I, I try to teach people, people always say, well, Ray, all you talk about is racism and white supremacy. And that the reason why is because I don't think we realize how bad it really is. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I, and, and dissecting it, you know, making sure we understand what white supremacy is and how that is affecting us at so many levels that we're not even aware of. Mhm, mhm. Jackie, thank you so very much for your call. I'm so glad that you joined us tonight. You, no, thanks you, for taking the call. You, 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 you really, in in terms of what I express as what are our the issues that sit in our living rooms and our kitchens? These are the things. How we are going to sustain ourselves? We need a sustain sustainability plan. Well, it's all right back now we don't to, have one. We talked about, you know, it's part of our organizing. We have to we look we have to look back and forward and right where we are. Right. And we can't do it without some sense of organization. That's right. Thank you so much for your your and and continued uh for your comments and continue to heal from your accident and please join us. We're here every Saturday night. This is a sanctuary. This is where we share uh, our triumphs and we share our pain and our struggle. Thank you. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I, Ray, you, I, you, you see, know. we we need to be, I mean, we need to have a radio show that on Monday night talks about how we uh begin to rebuild and sustain our families. On Tuesday night, we need to be talking about something. We need to be talking about how we develop an economic uh, protest strategy for political prisoners. I mean, we have so many communications needs, and and I think that that, that's one of the reasons I stay with radio, because I'm starting to get too old for this stuff, you know. (laughs) 
You gotta keep going, sis. You gotta keep going. <laughs> but I, I am so glad that you were able to serve as an ambassador mm-hmm. to extend our goodwill and our love to our brother Mumia Abu Jamal. And I hope people will begin to take seriously, not romantically or or in a sentimental sense, what it means that we have so many brothers and sisters sitting in our prisons who have been languishing for years because they chose to fight against a system that is unjust. There are soldiers. There are soldiers. And and see, I, every time, and it doesn't, it, you know, when you see these soldiers so-called coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and places like that, we got to think about we've got soldiers right here. And, you know, a lot of times I'd rather call them instead of political prisoners soldiers because they fought for on our behalf. And I think that we have to understand that, uh, Asada has not been allowed back in this country because she fought in our behalf. And I think Absolutely. if you've got to present them that way, and, and as I always do when I talk to young boys, I always tell people, you know, about being in prison. And people say, well, I don't want to go to prison. I say, well, you know, Malcolm X was in prison. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 Nelson Mandela was in prison. I mean, we have a whole host of people that were in prisons. And we've got to, like, have, we have to make, People, our young people feel that prison is something that to avoid, but there are people within those prisons that need to be rescued, and we need to right. teach that to our young people too. Well, thank you so much for visiting with us uh, again. I'm always excited when you're going to be with me because I, you have done the work, and therefore you have grasped the full picture of what we face as a people. Raymond Wimbush, thank you so much. And for those of you who are thank listening, you, make yeah. sure that you pick up your your list. But I want, one thing I wanted to tell you, and I haven't talked to you about this. You know, I was, uh, last last fall, my mother was not feeling well. And she kept mm-hmm. complaining about not feeling well. And one of the things that I thought about, well, she was saying she was having problems with her with her eyesight, and she found it difficult to read at night. And I would and I read her Belinda's petition over the phone each night, a couple of pages, and we got through it before she got really ill. And um, she told me about two days before she died. She said, "I was thinking about Belinda today." Oh boy. That touches my heart. Yeah. That touches yeah. my heart. So thank yeah, you that, so very much. And for those of you who have not read Belinda's petition, please do. Raymond Wimbush, you stay safe out there. Well, um, you you do the thing. Keep doing what you're doing, BJ. It's important. It's very important. I well, mean, you're, we'll a master be in touch. Of, you're a master of communication and how to get it done and get our people talking among our so, so just keep up the good work, okay? Well, thank you, my brother, and I love you very much. And we'll see you the next time at Our Common Ground. Love- that was our guest, Dr. Raymond Wimbush, and we thank you so very much for being our guest tonight. But you really aren't a guest when you come on 
our common ground, because this is our common ground. Next week, Yvette Carnell, culture critic, uh, talking about everything from Obama to Oprah. I'm Janice Graham, and thank you so very much. Thank you for your calls, and uh, join us on Wednesday night, uh, Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. He wants to put your soul on fire. I'm Janice Graham. Rise up, black men. I said rise up, black men. Rise like the rush of a million men marching up mountains to obtain their mental manumission. Let African pride be your ammunition and let's engage in sedition if we must. Because it's up to us to uplift our nation from the dust of dreadful damnation. Rise up, black men. I said rise up, black men. Rise up like a million men marching against the tide of societal injustice. Rise like a Nubian phoenix, turning that anger that burns incessantly on your inside into a torch that you take to toss on to the next generation so that they can take that flame and frame a resilient picture of our future. Rise up, black men. Rise to the... You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend. Maybe a young Turk Maybe the